Hey, Don. Hey, Zach. This week, I want to talk about going back to school in the fall. As our current school year is starting to come to a close, people are now starting to look at what is life going to be like in late August and September for schools. You and I are both teachers and educators, and this is just sort of an interesting question. The New Yorker had a piece where it looked at the issue from all sides, and it had this paragraph. It said, the cost of keeping children out of classrooms is high, educationally and socially. Lost instructional time is hard to recapture. Some high school students may drop out. Schools provide meals, social services, and for many students, a safe haven. And they allow parents to go back to work. So that is the cost if we don't get schools going. Schools do do a lot of things that I don't think the public even thinks about, as mentioned in that paragraph. What are your opening thoughts about that? Well, you know, it's hard to appreciate something until it's gone. Your freedom to go places, your freedom to have uh, a destination, to go get a cup of coffee or to sit at an internet cafe. We didn't really appreciate that till it was gone. And that's certainly the case with schools because now that schools are gone, people are realizing that this was really a place of socialization, a place where people could learn. Also, more importantly, the place where kids get food, kids have a safe haven, kids have emotional support, and some children that have that at lacking at home. I agree. As, as a parent of two element, young elementary age students, besides all of those things you mentioned where students go to school to receive those aspects of life, the instructional part, it is really difficult to sit at the side of a second grader and try to help them with their math, especially the new math, where I remember an older kind of math. And my child keeps telling me, that's not how we do it at school, daddy. To have the patience to be able to work with that many students, on top of also just trying to work at home myself, it's really difficult. And you start to realize like, wow, schools provided something in our lives that maybe we really took for granted. Well, and also it creates a situation in which there is a pattern behavior that has been created and expected by the students and the teachers. As the husband of a former kindergarten teacher, she always told me that we're doing the hard work here. We're teaching the kids how to raise their hands, how to take turns, how to share, how to put their cubbies away, put their jackets on. All these little things that put kids in a pattern. Well, the kids have learned how to behave in school. And I know that my sons will listen, pay attention, work hard in school, not cause misbehavior. But at home, it's just not the same environment and nor the same expectation. And as soon as they're done with their, whatever they feel they are done, have done a, whether a good or passable job on assignment, they're on their hoverboard, circling around, running around the house, fighting with each other and chasing the dog. It's like, no, no, that's not what we do. We have to finish the work. But it's not the same if you're not in that physical location. And I know that's true for my sons in middle school and fifth grade. And I suspect it's true of the high school kids. No, you bring up a really good point. I, I also think there's something to be said for having the teacher or the educator be a third party. I've noticed that my children treat me a lot like their dad instead of their teacher. And therefore, it's much harder to get them motivated. Behaviors that my kids will give me, eye rolling, poor attitude, quitting, those are all things that I just don't think they would be giving their teachers, who they like and respect at school, that sort of attitude. And I, and I like what you said about lack of routine. Everything is just kind of off. Schools provide such a large gap, almost an eight to 10 hour day for some kids where they're outside of their house and it happens five days a week. And I think it helps with everything from sleeping patterns to playing patterns to 
behavior. It also takes kids out of their comfort zone a little bit, which I think is good. I've noticed I've had to run some Zoom meetings where I've got kids coming to me live from their bedrooms, from their patios, from their cars, from all sorts of places. I think in some ways it, it sort of makes it like it's, I know I'm checking into school, but I don't necessarily have to behave totally like I would in normal school. I think in some ways that breaks that routine and it breaks that ability for us as educators to reach them, to, to teach them. And again, as you were saying, I think in some ways it kind of sends a message where, hey, I can put in some effort and then I'm going to go and try to find ways to start playing. My kids are always trying to find excuses to get on their trampoline, even if they haven't done the best job. And at some point as a parent, I just get so tired of the fighting that it's like, okay, I guess this will be good enough for today. Absolutely. And we're experienced educators, two of them in your house, two of them in my house, and we're trying our best to work with these kids, pouring time into them, despite the fact that we have other things that we need to get done. It's a real challenge. I can't imagine for people that have many, many kids or don't have the experience or the time or have to really work full time from home. I keep hearing from my engineer friends that their days have gotten longer. So instead of working for eight, 10 hours, they're on Zoom for 10, 11 hours at home. It's just, I can't imagine doing that and parenting at the same time. Not to think, say anything of the children that we live, have and that are struggling with poverty, struggling with substance abuse in their home or abuse of some sort. They are really going to struggle. And I imagine they're falling behind at a really fast rate. And that's what the New Yorker mentions. It's not just these kids that are hungry or not eating right or not sleeping right. It's all the other factors where they are not being stimulated in other ways. I, I totally agree. And I'm always proud of our school district and other school districts out there when you read about how they almost didn't miss a beat when the virus started and they continued to provide meals every day and provide pickup locations. It's amazing how schools jump to be able to provide technology to families that couldn't afford it. You also just realize the idea of a safe haven, as you said, not every home is a good one for kids and therefore school is a respite to get relief from having to be at home for so many kids to have smiling, positive adults in their life who are asking about how they're doing is something that I think a lot of kids are, are missing. And I really think that's an important part that school provides in society. The New Yorker article also just at the very end, I think makes a very simple statement. They allow parents to go to work. There is sort of a, a daycare component to what schools provide as well. And it almost seems like we can't fully escape this virus and the economic destruction until we can allow people to go to work. How much do you think that argument should play into whether or not we open up schools in the fall? Before I talk about that, I do want to talk about the previous point you made about being a safe haven. And I reminded me of when I taught in Southern California in a school that was 80% free and reduced lunch, those kids loved school because that was the only time they didn't have to care for a sibling or work or deal with a messed up home life. And the school was nice. Nobody tagged up the walls. Nobody met, drew on the bathrooms. Nobody, everybody treated the teachers with respect and didn't leave litter in the classrooms because it was the nicest place they went all day. And they really, really enjoyed it because that was the fun part of their day. Because afterwards they went home, they didn't have that kind of fun going on. Now to your other point that about restarting schools, yeah, I read about this early on, like, well, what do you do if you're a healthcare professional? If you're a doctor or a nurse, putting yourself in tremendous risk, working all the time, where do you send your children? How are they going to be taken care of? Now, this is true of everybody. How do you really restart an economy unless people go back to school? I, I don't know. I think schools have to start in some form. And I think they have to start to be effective in the economy to recover 
in a real physical sort of in the classroom sense. And I think that's what I'm starting to sense when I talk to friends that aren't necessarily teachers, although it also is a sense when I'm talking to friends who are teachers, where everybody's been at home together for a really long time. Everybody's been trying to teach their kids, go to work online. And now all of a sudden, people are so exhausted, I think, from this process that it seems like people are ready to just kind of make the trade. I will take the trade of risk versus getting my kids to school every day. It sort of makes me wonder though, and it makes me want to step back for a moment because I sometimes feel like, you know what, time to go back to work, time to get schools going again. But then I always ask, has anything really changed? In March, we shut down the schools because of this virus, because of the virus's R value and because of how much more lethal it is than the common flu. And at this point, here we are a few months later, we still don't have a vaccine. The virus is still out there. It seems like we did do what we set out to do, which was bend the curve to make sure we don't overwhelm hospitals. But the virus is still here, and it looks like still no vaccines realistically until next year at some point. So therefore, has anything really changed? And, and really, does that mean that we really should be keeping schools closed? I think there's a lot of things that have changed. One of my students who did tell me he had COVID and another student who I suspect had COVID, both were in class coughing up along right before the school year ended. We weren't wearing protection. We weren't wearing masks. We weren't practicing any extra sanitary measures. I looked at them coughing and thought, uh-oh, but I wasn't wearing a mask. So I think we know a little better about how to behave. I think the constant focus on sanitizing desks and tables is a waste of time and energy. Because ultimately, we really get this from somebody coughing or sneezing or yelling right in front of us. Face-to-face -face interaction is what's causing it, not touching desks or things like that. So it was a little misplaced effort. But some things have changed. Also, hospitals have gotten a little better. They've realized, okay, we don't put up people on ventilators right, right, right away. We put them face down and we give them the CPAP machine or we do what this or that or the next thing, which will help us deal with this a little better. But the president of the University of Michigan, Dr. Mark Schissel, said that whatever we decide for the fall is going to be for the year because nothing's changing between the fall and the winter, which I thought was an interesting point. We're not likely to get a vaccine in the winter even. It might be next year. So we got to figure out what we're going to do. Then a few weeks later, he's pretty optimistic that Michigan's going to have students on campus. Michigan State's going to have students on campus. And Notre Dame's going to have students on campus. And if the colleges are doing this, then we should be able to do it at the secondary level, right? That's a tremendous question. Just to go back to your point that things have changed, I would, I would agree with that. I think the other thing too, besides all of our methods at treating the virus and thinking about how it spreads, I think society as a whole has adjusted. I'm always amazed when I go to like Costco or Home Depot and I realize those stores are requiring that people have masks, but I don't see a bunch of angry people standing outside saying, I'm not gonna wear a mask. I mean, everybody is trying to cover up Everybody seems very much interested in giving each other wide amounts of space to walk. And I think in some ways we've accepted sort of the reality. And I do think if schools were to open up, people would accept, okay, like schools might have to open up with kids wearing masks. Schools might have to open up with designated hand washing times or everybody or teachers having to clean tables in between classes. What I wonder though is, is that sustainable? Can every day where you're dealing with a younger population, college populations are older aged adults. Now we're dealing with elementary kids. I had to go into a hardware store with my daughter just a couple days ago. And within two minutes, she was complaining about wanting to get her mask off. 
I can't imagine if she's trying to go into school every day like that. Do you think kids can do their part? Because we're going to be asking a lot of them. I think some kids will do their part. Other kids won't. And that's the question is, what do you do with the exceptions? Just like when we deal with bathroom passes and whatnot. Most kids go to the bathroom and come back. Other kids disappear for 25 minutes. It's going to be the, the difficult parts with the kids that don't want to follow. And like you said, most people are wearing masks. But we talked with a friend last night who said he doesn't want it. He's not going. He doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe that that's the way it's spread. He doesn't think he's going to get it. And he's not wearing a mask. I didn't say anything to his face, but I said, oh, okay, all right, well, that's a different perspective. And recently I was up in your uh, native territory of northern Michigan, and mask participation's a lot lower up there. People there don't seem to be quite as concerned. And I imagine at the, at the high school, we'd have some kids that are very concerned and other kids that aren't. And they just think, I don't need to wear a mask. And how do we deal with those students? Well, first of all, the people of Northern Michigan are a hardy people. We, uh, we come from a different breed. <laughs> but I think you make a really good theoretical point. Okay, so what if some people don't believe that COVID-19 as, is as lethal or is, is as big a deal as other people? So what if students don't come to school with a mask? Will, will mask be provided? But what if students don't want to wear it? What if parents are telling students not to wear it? Can a student get in trouble for that? Can they be told to go home or will they have to be, you know, move somewhere else in the room? And I think obviously schools will solve this issue or they'll come up with whatever their answer is. But on top of all the other issues, this has become sort of a political belief issue and schools will once again be caught in the middle of that as well. So we're always told that the best predictor of our student success is how they're bonded with their teacher. So if we engage with the student and build a relationship with that student, regardless of whatever challenges that student has, that's the best thing that can help us teach them, is if they feel they're cared about by us and we're working with them to the best of their interest. Are we able to do that if we're wearing a mask and insisting that they wear a mask and the first day isn't, hey, hey, I'm Mr. McLaughlin, I'm pretty funny, I want to, I'm going to make you laugh, we're going to have a good time here in econ class, and instead it's, we can't even start until you put your mask on and get further away from the student that is to your left or right. As we focus on all of these logistics, can we still build the relationships with the most challenging of students? That's a great point, because a lot of my relationship building is usually with one-on-one -on -one conversations where you try, to, you try to get near a child within a foot or two and just, hey, how was your weekend? Or, oh, I know you love basketball. You watched the Pistons last night. As you're saying, now, theoretically, in order to make a classroom safe, it's going to be you and I up having to talk to everybody from a, from a distance away. That's going to be hard. And especially if kids can't see your lips maybe moving because you're behind a mask. Just communication from humans. We've learned a lot about gestures and reading faces and expressions. And now half your face is covered. That's going to be difficult. I think that could alienate some kids in the classroom. For me as well, it's more of a two-pronged approach. I make a big scene in the classroom and I'm very loud and I try to be funny and most of the students laugh. But as important to that is the come to Jesus chat I have with one or two students every, every term, every class. And where I pull them aside and say, look, when you do this, all the other students don't focus on me, they focus on you. And I understand that's funny and interesting for you, but really they need to learn. And some of them struggle. They're not as bright as you. The student will be like, yeah, I know there's some dumb kids. Like, yeah, well, I need your help. So when I give you the head nod, when I say, 
hey, student, please, or let's chill out a little bit, student, then that's your indication that I need your help. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I want you to understand that your behavior is impacting other students. And I don't say this in front of students. I usually walk down the hall with the student quietly when they're going to the bathroom or something, just so it's not embarrassing for them. But it's hard to have that conversation when you're six feet away, when you're trying to keep a mask on them and on you. It's a challenge. And it's one that we're up for, but I think it's one that's going to be a lot harder than anticipated. That's a tremendous point. I wasn't even thinking yet about Discipline has really changed in schools, and, and most teachers nowadays, when there is a problem, it's usually a private conversation. You try to give kids that respect. You try to get to an understanding with them, and that, again, that's a very close quarters discussion, and as you were saying that, I was just thinking about right before COVID hit and all the schools had closed down, I was a guest reader in my, my kindergartner's classroom, and her teacher's amazing, but I just remember watching her teacher like giving kids hugs and kind of rubbing them on the back and trying to manage the classroom in her own very personal way. But you think about elementary kids who are very touchy and clingy, not only with their teachers, but each other. That's a whole hard part to sort of control. I'd like to read you one more paragraph, just because I think that this author really does a great job of talking about a general classroom. The author, his name is Harley Leitzelman, and he wrote from the bolditalic.com. He's a teacher and he just describes that while everybody wants to keep thinking that school is like Ferris Bueller's Day Off where you had Ben Stein up there, anybody, anybody, and everybody's just in rows and really bored. A lot of education has changed and a lot of teachers are trying very progressive ideas where kids are up, moving, constantly talking, constantly chatting. And so here's his paragraph. He just says, teachers ask kids to do a lot to build this environment. Teachers ask kids to pick up the new handout on the way in. Get the old handout from yesterday. Get an extra if you lost it or if you were absent. Get out your pencil. Get an extra pencil off my desk if you need one. Find your seat and sit down on your seat that several other students have already sat on. We ask them to find a partner, find a new partner. Go to the corner of the room that corresponds with the character you most agree with. Film the video outside, form a circle, two circles, now switch. We ask them to get a Chromebook from the class's Chrome cart that four classes have already touched that day. They'll need to line up to put away the Chromebooks and make sure to plug them in. Sometimes they need to go back to the back and get the markers, crayons, paintbrushes, tissues, paper bandages, so many bandages, and textbooks. And they'll do this a dozen times in a class period. As they weave in between the desks, they nudge and bump their peers and step on their backpacks, breathing one another's air and smelling one another's stink. And that paragraph to me reminds me a lot of my classroom and many other classrooms of my colleagues. Schools are, are limited space places. We have lots of classrooms, lots of students in them. And it can just be a place where there's just people moving about, people living, people doing what they're being asked, but not a place that really allows a lot of social distancing. What do you think about that? I think it's a great paragraph. I also think that it reminds me that no child is left behind. In that years ago, if you didn't fit with the school mix, you dropped out or you went to a different school or you went to just a shop school or maybe you just stopped coming altogether. Now we do create education for everybody. Although let's say 70% of our students could do well in a 1950s school where the teacher-student relationship is very adversarial and that everybody sat in rows, there's a lot of our students that wouldn't have been able to handle it. And in the 1950s version, they would have dropped out or left. But now we're gonna get everybody through due to legislation, due to various things, which is really made for better teaching. 
and more engagement and a more diverse student body in terms of academic achievement and abilities. But we're also teaching everybody algebra too. And so we've found revolutionary ways to do that. But all these things, like you said, are challenging for social distancing. And they're going to be very difficult to put back into effect as we come back. And I think the new norm in this COVID time, forever long it lasts, would be one that will be very challenging for the students that are least able to handle the uncertainty. That's a really good point about our most at-risk students. And you're right, 50 years ago, schools might have been hoping those kids would drop out so that their problems would not be the school's problem anymore. And schools now, instead of taking a much different approach of, we're here to help everybody and we're gonna do everything we can. Your discussion of just sort of the way schools have changed to try to help everybody is really accurate. I also makes me think of my brother-in-law. He's a big believer that 90% of life is just showing up for something and then you know you can kind of get through it. And I do think about public schools in that once we get those at-risk students into our classes, it's amazing how much we can start to get out of those students and how we can start to form those relationships and help them get across the goal line. Whereas online teaching is hard because we're asking students to have a lot of self-discipline and a lot of ability to solve issues on their own. Whereas when we're in that classroom, we can direct those kids and, and start to help them complete the tasks we need them to complete. Not being in school is gonna be hard, but I guess I sort of just wonder, that paragraph that describes school, if we're not doing that, then what are we kind of going back to? What is gonna be the experience we're gonna be able to offer kids that will worth, be worthwhile? Do you still think we can offer something that's worthwhile for kids to come back to? Yeah, and to build on your point before we answer that next question is in, consider that the students that are least able to and least resilient are the ones that are probably going to come back in the greatest disparity of their amount of learning. Those students are going to not do online learning, at least in my classes. There's not a lot of my students that are likely, that are struggling students that have participated at all in the online. And perhaps they become vampire children because they sleep all day and stay up all night. There was a Wall Street Journal about that. Perhaps they're working for DoorDash. I know one of my students is making thousands of dollars a week doing DoorDash. I saw another student deliver a, uh, a little bouquet thing to my house. So they're maybe working. They're not building on these skills. They're going to come back a little bit behind. That is a challenge. Now, what are we doing? I think expectations for everybody has decreased. We don't expect it to be back to what it was before. We just want some sort of normalcy. There's a lot of hand-wringing in my house about how our private pool, is it going to open? If it doesn't open, that's really a problem for us. But if it opens and it has limited capacity, we're fine with limited capacity. We're fine with not standing close to people. We're fine with anything. I think the same thing is true with the school in that we'll just have back. Just let's get back. But the other part of that article that echoed with me is the discipline aspect. How are we going to keep students six feet apart in passing? Are we as teachers going to patrol the hallways? Are we going to say, hey, you can't be six feet apart and you got to be six feet apart. Then they walk around the corner into somebody else's area and stand close together. It's much like the dress code enforcement. No teacher wants to enforce the dress code. But as we do, we look at the other teacher. How is it fourth hour and you have gotten this far without changing this outfit? It'll come on everybody having to enforce it. And I wonder if there'll be, if this does happen, an inevitable creep where we enforce it a little less. We're a little less for every infraction, that we just let it slide a little bit more as time goes on, as it becomes more onerous to try to uh, enforce those things. That's a really good point. I could see day one, week one, everybody ready, 
let's socially distance, let's wear our mask, we're in this together. And then slowly, it just becomes hard to stay that vigilant. The article that Harley also wrote, he brings up a great point about the sort of unspoken social contract that students and teachers and administrators have all kind of formed. And the idea is before school, after school, in between classes, lunch, that is your time, students, to socialize, be around your friends. We'll give you that in exchange for you coming into classrooms and, and trying. Obviously, it's not always a perfect social contract, but the idea is there's enough of other reasons of why kids like to be at school that they'll kind of put up with the rest. What happens if keeping everybody socially distant means students need to stay in one room all day long? Students are not allowed to go to a cafeteria, minimizing hallway time for students because we don't want them crowded. After a week of that, do you think students will be able to continue to buy into this social contract that we've given them when we've totally changed it on them? Yeah, I mean, that is the reason they want to come to school. It's not because they want to learn math or economics. It's because they want to interact with their peers and kind of see people and be seen. And to a certain degree, I think there, our generation of students right now is finding out that social media isn't the perfect replacement for all of that, that they really miss seeing each other. And I do wonder what will happen if they can't, we take away that informal time. Also, if we take away football, because football seems to be a high-risk sport from what I read in the article that I sent you. Also, if we take away prom, if we take away homecoming, if we take away other school activities, what if you can't be close to each other or have lunch together because you're having lunch in your classroom? These are all things that are bringing students in and may make people want to leave. I remember my first year teaching, two students I thought of when you were just mentioning this. I had a student that only showed up on Fridays. And I was like, why do you only show up on Fridays? He said, well, I want to find out what's going on this weekend, where the parties are. I, want to, I don't want to miss out on that. Oh, okay, so you come on Fridays. Okay, that makes sense to me. And I remember I had another student who was on probation, and he showed up every day and never did anything. I said, well, why, what are you doing? Why don't you just do the work? You're here. He said, well, there's girls here. I want to see the girls. I want to hang out and talk to people. I don't want to just miss out on that. So he was in school. I, maybe he was picking up things on the side but he wasn't really doing any work because he didn't care if he passed, but he wanted to be involved in the community. It makes me think that we all have this idea of we're going back in the fall, yay, and we have this vision of school that we once knew, but there's gonna have to be adjustments. I think that's something that people haven't quite started to think through, and that's what this guy does with his article, which is a little bit science fiction-y as he tries to imagine school in the fall, and you could argue it's a little bit dark than maybe what would really happen, but I do wonder, at what point do we adjust so many things about the school experience, about how kids are allowed to behave and what kids are allowed to do and how teachers are allowed to teach that it really isn't school anymore or it's not really the school that we once knew and all wanted to get back to. It's just kind of like a socially distant holding cell for kids where we're keep them in rows and we're trying just to talk to them and it just doesn't feel like school and it, it almost makes people reject the whole experience. Well, what if we dealt with that by saying there's a choice? This is what school is going to look like in the fall. You can come or you can do the online thing, but it's going to be more onerous than the online thing we did this spring. Or you can do a blend of the two, but you have to make a binding decision. People are telling me that may be an option. Then you can say like, all right, this is what school looks like. The contract is if you come to school, these are the rules. Do you want to come to school or do you want to work online? And then if that's the case, then you can say to students, well, you're not following the protocol that was established. 
there's another option for you. You can work online and we're going to have you do that unless you can follow the protocol. That seems to be the solution to students that don't want to be in school or don't want to behave that way saying, all right, well, there's another alternative. You don't have to do this. That could be a solution for schools is let people choose. I do wonder about the logistics of that. Can schools stretch themselves to be able to meet both of those demands? And I'm sure you'd have two sets of parent groups that are both interested in that sort of option. One other thing I'll sort of add to that is, okay, you have the online schooling experience, which is obviously different than what is going on inside of schools. And then do you think out of this whole virus experience then, if we start to offer this face-to-face or we start to change what face-to-face school is like, the online schooling experience is obviously different. Do you think all of this could lead to us just sort of asking a bigger question as society, which is what is school? What's supposed to happen there? What does it mean? Do you think schools could be fundamentally changed after all this year or two, we finally get a vaccine and now we've had this experience, could you see that everything about our jobs or how we relate to kids or what we're supposed to be doing with kids or what kids are supposed to do in school changes? I don't think so. And here's why. Because there's education reforms and changes that come like a wave and then we watch them recede. And so when I first started teaching in California, it was scripted lessons with clickers where you would click a little clicker after the question to make the students respond in a very Pavlovian response. And I was told by a principal that that's the way all classes were going to be. And every teacher would teach using this. And it didn't work in the way for seed. Now, much like we talked about before, the MOOC, the massive online classes, where Harvard's going to teach everybody sociology. I remember reading a whole New Yorker article on it. And that wave crested and quickly receded. Online schools came. You and I both teach for an online school. And it was thought that this will replace normal schools. And in turn, it is a little bit of a supplementary activity for some kids that are in unique situations or want to do additional coursework or summer coursework. So that's receded. Schools seen a lot of waves come and go, and it seems to work the way it works. It's not scripted. It's letting teachers be their own person and bond with the students. Ultimately, I think it's going to be a teacher in front of a group of students, making them laugh, making them interested, trying to convey a topic or a concept in the way that the students will engage with, which is what good teaching is. And I think it's going to stick around. I think you're right about the pendulum always seems to shift to the left and to the right. You could argue there's still progress that has happened, but it still seems to stay sort of between two barriers, I guess, that, that kind of keep school moving forward. Do you think, though, that schools are set up for trying to provide sort of this hybrid model as, as you just sort of were suggesting? Maybe people are given a choice. I always worry about there's the production possibilities curve in economics where you can produce two goods. And as long as you stay on that curve, you are producing at the optimal rate, right? The, the, the classic case is like you can make guns or you can make butter, or you can make a combination of both. And so you sort of suggest, okay, well, you can, schools will offer online or will offer face-to-face or will offer a combination of both. But getting on that optimal line, as you know, is, is nearly impossible after the theory And if you're not using your resources correctly, you end up producing somewhere below the line, which is not optimal. And one fear I have is that maybe public schools aren't set up to be able to offer both of these and that people are going to be pulled in multiple directions trying to meet so many different needs that maybe the product quality really suffers. What do you think about that? I think the teachers are not all the same. 
and that they have different skills or a comparative advantage, as we'd say in economics. I teach all three. I teach blended classes where the kids are in class half time and online half time. I teach online classes and I teach in-person classes. I think I'm best in person, but I can do the others, but it's not a huge trade-off for me. I think there's other teachers that are really, really good online that may not be as good in person. And perhaps you could assign people different things. I read that one in five teachers does not want to come back into the classroom in the fall due to fears of COVID or whatnot. If that's the case, perhaps we could say, hey, we need one person from each department to just do online stuff and work from home. And I bet you'd find that one person in each department. I bet you could do that. And so this is a possibility. I think overall, though, we're very much focusing on the secondary, which makes sense because we're both secondary teachers. The primary situation is much different. How do you do a kindergarten online all the time? It's just nearly impossible. I feel like maybe the kindergartners, the elementary schools have to go more in person, or maybe everybody would choose to send their kids to the elementary school, which of course is the more fraught because you can't get them to stay six feet apart on the playground. Like you said, the hugs are constant. It's a very different world at elementary school. And I imagine that's gotta be in person or those students that are not in person are going to be falling behind at an incredibly fast rate, but also puts those teachers in the most perilous position, closest to the most students who are not taking precautions, who are most likely to infect them. I think you bring up a great point about the nuances to this debate, because you're right, we've probably been talking most of the time today about secondary experience, and yet for that elementary level, it's such a different world and what those kids need. Again, as somebody who has two young kids, I'm seeing it. They need to have somebody next to them helping them work through lessons in a way that older kids theoretically don't need as much help. Once again, we talked about schools and that production possibilities curve. It just seems really difficult to make policy at different levels. You know, how do you do it for elementary and then how do you do it for the, the higher levels? If you need to socially distance elementary kids, then do you theoretically need more elementary teachers to do that? Well, where are you getting them from, right? The other issue that we haven't even talked about is school budgets. And as we're seeing across the country, school districts are facing massive budget shortages. And maybe there'll be a federal bailout, but it's not like you can just say, well, we're going to go out and hire more teachers or more people to, to watch these kids. I think you make a good point. And before we get to the budget, you reminded me of something when you talked about staying next to them. Something I've always thought as a parent and as a teacher is when things go wrong, almost always I'm sitting down. If I'm sitting down in my classroom, then kids in the back are not working. So I will walk back there and stand next to them. And if I stand next to them and have that intimate conversation we've talked about before and say, hey, let's do this. Let's draw this graph. Let's work through this. Come on, man. No matter who that kid is, they'll start working if I'm standing and walking around. Sitting down is always the enemy, and keeping distance from students is always the enemy. And not only are the elementary kids, but also the kids with the most needs need the teacher next to them. As a parent, too, when I start yelling at my kids, it's always because I'm sitting down, because I'm not over there with them, which makes parenting and teaching freaking exhausting. And that's why I end up sweating all day long, both in the classroom and at home, and have to take a shower before bed, because it's exhausting. You have to be in their face and moving. As you know, I like to run. I like to work out every day. The first day of school wipes me out because I'm standing and talking and yelling and moving all day long between every group of kids. And that's going to be a challenge. The budgeting thing is just a cluster. Ultimately, what will happen, I believe, is that you and I will all take a hit. 
So we're gonna lose 10% of our income or 20% of our income. School districts, 80% of their budget is staffing. I think our union and the administrators will, usually actually the administrators take the hit before the teachers because they're told to be examples. And we're all gonna take a hit, but we're gonna have 10% less money or 20% less money, which means I'll be able to invest less money in my, my children's college fund. And it's gonna stink, but ultimately, we are a fairly protected class. We're all college educated. I know that my household's in the 80 plus percent in income in our nation. Really, I don't think people are gonna be crying over my, effect, my ability to not save as much for my, students, my son's college. I think that's the budgeting reaction. I don't think there's any way around that. You're probably right. I just think that aside from how, how teachers will be financially treated with this whole thing, comes the reality that enforcing all these socially distant policies inside of school, buying more wipes, buying extra masks, that's just going to cost money. And how do you fund all of these, these initiatives that you want to start in a dime? And it, can you even? It's really the, difficult. The bigger one is the busing. Are we going to do every, thir every other bus seat open? So we're yeah. going to do two bus runs? Are we going to have buses coming at different times? I know some schools don't have very many buses with different bus drivers and all the maintenance. I just can't imagine that aspect. That increases the price tremendously, which means you have to hire more people. It's just going to get real pricey. And also, so teachers may take an even bigger hit. So perhaps, yeah, we'll have to spend more money. We'll have to get more masks, which by the way, I have an N95 mask, which is the top of the line mask. It is miserable. After half an hour in it, I'm ready to choke myself out on the floor of the uh, grocery store. I'm going to a cheaper mask just because it's so miserable wearing the N95 mask, but it makes me less safe. If I have to do that for a whole day in a classroom, it's going to take some getting used to. I know doctors and nurses do it all the time, but it's going to be just an uncomfortable mess for everybody involved. And you're right. People are going to pull their masks down and be like, ugh. I actually saw my son put on a mask as we went to the store. And then he was about to sneeze, so he pulled the mask off to sneeze. I was like, no, that's the reason you have the mask. Yeah, but then the bookers are all going to be on my face. Like, yeah, well, that is what it is. That's the point of the mask. Don't take it off to sneeze. He's like, oh, oh, this is going to be awful. Like, yes, it's going to be awful. My, my kids are concerned about how are we supposed to eat with the mask on. And uh, I just said, well, I won't send you to school with a caramel apple. <laughs> Other school districts have started to propose a hybrid model where half the student body comes for two days a week. Maybe everybody stays at home for one day a week while they thoroughly clean the school. Again, that would be more expensive, I gotta assume. And then the other two days a week, the other half of the kids come. So the idea would be you're spacing out bodies, you're, you're trying to keep people socially distanced. Do you think that model has a lot of merit? I think that you're gonna get two days of education in that most kids are not doing much at home. I already believe that almost all homework assignments are plagiarized. So if you make it a, home assign a homework assignment with a reading assignment or a set of problems, kids are gonna cheat, one person's gonna do it, everybody's gonna copy their answers. It's just too easy for them with their phones to do so. And so your homework assignment has to be pretty creative in that it is create a poem or create this individual thing or that individual thing. You can't let them just do read an article because they won't do it. So you're going to have them two days a week. You're going to teach them two days a week. They're not going to learn that much else is my takeaway.
Do you think though the flip model could help with that in terms of, hey, when you're at home, you're basically absorbing, you're looking at reading content. And when you show back up at school, we're gonna kind of give you a quick assessment here. You picked up stuff and then really school's gonna be about trying to have some conversations, trying to do some activities. But as I'm talking about that, I'm now realizing all of those things you can't really do in a very socially distanced way. The other aspect of the football that I've always disagreed with is what makes me engaging as a presenter in class is making eye contact with students, making them laugh, having timing, having jokes, making examples that are customized, references to individual students. When a student starts to stray in their attention, I make the joke about something they do, whether they're in football or dance, or engage that into the class. Having a video is not necessarily going to engage them. I don't know about you, but when we started this, I used, Mike, I used uh, Zoom, and I could see my students, and I could watch them. Some of them were paying attention, but many of them weren't. They were just on because they were told to be on, and they were zoning out or looking at other things. But then I could call out their name. Well, now I'm using Teams, and I'm not allowed to see their faces because we're recording it, and I can't engage with them. I don't know if they're paying attention. They may have just turned it on and walked to the other room. I've often asked them questions to get no response or three minutes later, a typed response in the chat box. I don't think the flipped classroom works for all students, certainly for some, but the most important thing is to engage with them. So if I was to do this model of hybrid, I would do my direct instruction in class, engaging students, practicing problems, and at home, I'd have them do a project, do something where they have to present, they have to do something with the idea, and bring it back, something they can't copy or plagiarize, because I have to count in class for assessment and for instruction. And so it makes the in-class time tremendously valuable and the out-of-class time a bit of a throwaway in my mind. That's a really good point about what you just described as is what you see as your strengths as a teacher. Every time you hear these different models, it always sort of makes the assumption that a one-size-fits-all model works for all students and all teachers. We all know that the best innovation comes when you have individual teachers playing to their strengths, reading their classroom, understanding what their kids need, and then adjusting as they go. In a lot of ways, these hybrid models, you know, people could probably get very creative if they're forced to work in the system. But off the top of the bat, you, that, that's a tremendous point that all of a sudden, a lot of people are going to have to not use their strengths and have to play almost from a deficit to try to get caught up with how the classroom could run. I also just wonder with these hybrid models, again, I know people have this desire to get back to school, but you look at this and it's like, okay, well, you're going to come for two days a week. And at what point does school not really become school anymore? And that's kind of what I think about with some of these models. Some of the models are offering childcare for elementary kids on the day that they're not at school so that parents can go to work. But then I just sort of wonder, well, what's the point of not just still doing school then if they're still showing up to a public school to now just sort of have daycare? Well, yeah, and I think this is less of a uniform movement than it is a wildcat movement. And I want to give you a couple examples for that. We were hanging out with some, another couple last night, and the mom works from home and always has, and the husband works in an office. And the kids are just driving them nuts because they both need to get things done. And they're great kids, really solid, hardworking students. But the mom said, if schools aren't going to be there in the fall, where do I need to sign them up for private school? I'll start saving now. And I thought, oh, wow, what if you're a private school and you open and the public schools stay closed? Maybe you see an a overflow of demand for spots in your private school. And because parents want to send their kids places. 
So then the public schools might realize, oh man, the private schools are opening. We better go first. Do note, it was Notre Dame who decided they were gonna have students on campus first, the private school. And now public schools are saying, yes, we'll have them on campus too. It might be a little bit of a wildcat solution. Also, I've heard from people that there's football practices happening. Football teams are practicing. You and I read this gigantic article from the National Institute of Sports or something about how sports will come back and there are different phases. And in phase one, it's only groups of 10 kids. In phase two, there might be 30 kids, but they're not sharing a ball. So individual kids are practicing with their individual ball, but they're not passing the ball between two people. And then I was reading all that the other day and I found out this kid is going to, that we know is going to football practice. But football is considered one of the highest risk sports because you're right in each other's faces, making physical contact with each other. So football practice is starting. I know of other students are doing baseball practice. Well, if these things are starting, maybe it's just a wildcat solution that the preponderance of places are saying, we're doing something. And then the public sector is going to have to say, well, it's happening regardless. We're not solving the spacing thing because people are already not spacing. We'll just start our own school, just get our school on because students are going to group up either way. That's a really good point. The marketplace in some ways will decide. And you could argue schools are kind of like an oligopoly and they're all following game theory here. If everybody stays out and says we're doing online, then everybody has to do that, right? But the moment somebody quote unquote cheats or starts to offer a different model, this is all about finding students to come to your schools. And it almost forces everybody to open up. I wonder though, does everybody say we're gonna open up and then really ultimately they'll have to just allow the governor or federal or governmental officials to make the final decision as to whether schools can be open? I think the government officials are more swayed by public opinion than we assume. Our governor has been a leader and a highly criticized leader, but this said, you can't go to your cottage up north. You can't use your boat initially. And people lost their minds because they thought of these are our possessions that we pay for and own. We should be able to use them. You can't tell us not to do it. And so those things were fairly quickly rescinded. Then private golf courses opened because people, they're, they're private, they're owned by individuals. And then shortly thereafter, the public courses were saying, well, for the private courses are open, why can't public golf courses be open? And then public golf courses are open. So there's a little bit of a creep in that I think the governor and other governors are thinking, we'll make the strictest requirements that we think people can follow. And ultimately, that's going to have to slide back as more people are willing to do more things. And if one private school opens, if Country Day opens, and then other people within the governor realizes that they can't block all, block all schools, it's going to be a quick rescinding of enforcement and then just acceptable losses, perhaps. That's a good point about our leaders following the will of the people. And you could argue that's a, another sign that we have a functioning and strong democracy is our politicians are always trying to read the tea leaves and figure out what do people want. And sometimes, as we know, humans are not rational. They will want things that are not necessarily always best for them. But this kind of leads me to my, my final question is the New Yorker at the very end of its article says, look, if schools are going to open or if they're not going to open, should we be considering what students think? What do students want to do? Do you think we should be asking students for their opinions about this? Do you think their voice counts? As we just said, you know, our elected leaders are listening to what the population wants, but that population are 18 and year old voters and, and families and parents. Do you think kids and student voice matters in this at all about whether or not we should return? 
That's a really good question. And I like the question a lot. I think it should matter because ultimately, although the students don't make the wisest judgments, and they're not fully formed in their uh, rationing ability, rationalizing abilities, they still, it's an important to think about what they want. And my younger son, who has been overjoyed with coronavirus because he loves his family and he doesn't like that many other people, he hates elementary school and he wants to be done because he, and he can't wait to be middle school. Even he this week said, I hope I go to middle school in the fall because, and he has not been sad to be working from home. And I thought, wow, he's, he's ready to go. I think a lot of people want to go back and just have a return to normalcy, even if it's just a semblance of normalcy that if students want to go back, let's let them. I think you could survey the parents. Now, of course, there's going to be a one to 2% on either side that feel, feels vehemently. And I think that's perhaps why people are talking about an option. Students are going to be the ones that we're going to ask to wear the masks. We're going to ask them to bear a big brunt of the social cost of, of going to school and maybe not necessarily being able to behave in the way that they know. It seems on one hand logical that we give them a voice in this. I don't know how you actually do that. At the same time, as we know too, students don't necessarily always make the best choices. But I do wonder if you got more buy-in. Yeah, they could elect to make whatever decision they want in concert with their parents or without? Well, the, it's gonna be an interesting fall. And as I, I feel like we kind of were talking about this when we talked about the trial tests, I guess I'm kind of glad I don't have to make the choices on this one because this just seems difficult. And it just seems like another hard choice that, that society has to make where there is no good solution here. Yeah, there's not a perfect solution, but it will be decided incrementally as the colleges decided, maybe in hindsight, Cal State University saying no to, online, to physical classes is gonna backtrack and say, yes, we will have physical classes because after we did that, Notre Dame and Michigan State and likely Michigan and many other colleges said we will do in person. It's just gonna be little steps all along and perhaps it works. Maybe we could start a charter school where we would have in-person classes and we'll be the only open school and everyone will wanna enroll. I never thought about the marketplace for students and how that could have an impact on some of this stuff as well. And I like the idea of incremental. That never sounds as dramatic. Usually when you talk about a topic like this, you're always thinking one big swiping policy change is what's going to impact everybody. But I think you're right that people are going to kind of find their way through this, whether they're fumbling or, or actually walking towards a, a point. But eventually something will get decided. And I'd like to think that the best interest of most people is going to be taken into account as we figure this out. Yeah, we'll see. This will be something to definitely follow as the summer goes on. But Don, this has been a really interesting conversation to hear your points on a lot of this stuff. And I look forward to, to talking with you again next week. All right. Sounds good. Good talk with you, Zach. Take care, Don. Thank you.